0: Last week we got up to lesson number 16 which was the night that the Lord spent talking with Nicodemus when he gave that very famous born again message to Nicodemus and then following the Lord's Passover visit in Jerusalem remember what he had done when he first got to Jerusalem he went immediately to the temple and he cleansed it for the first time he cleansed it again later on in his ministry but that was the first time he went to Jerusalem he cleansed the temple and then it was that night that he had his night talk with Nicodemus well after his Passover visit in the city of Jerusalem he traveled through Samaria which remember was despised territory For the Jewish people, the Jews hated the Samaritans because they were what they considered a half-breed. But he said he must needs pass through Samaria. And he stopped, remember, if you were here with us during that time of our study, he stopped at Jacob's well because he had a divine appointment, appointment which was made with a woman before she was even conceived He knew that he would meet her right outside of the village of Sychar, the Samaritan village of Sychar, at Jacob's Well. And he conversed with this messed up woman. Her life had been a a wreck because she had had five husbands and she was currently living with her sixth. And I thought it was very interesting that she finally met the seventh man in her life. And that seventh man was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that seven is the number of perfection in the Bible. She finally met the perfect man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And during his beautiful conversation with this lost and hurting soul... The Lord Jesus revealed for the very first time, and we thought that this was very interesting, seeing as we're all women, to anybody the truth of his identity, it was to a woman. And it happened to be to this woman at the well. He told her that he was the Christ, and that was in John four twenty-six. And he invited her, as he invites each one of us here this morning, no matter what our past or even what our present circumstances might be. He doesn't care how messed up our lives might be, what a shambles we might have made of them. I mean, if any of you had six husbands, don't raise your hand if you have. (laughs) But he didn't care what her past was. He cared about her. And so he invited her to come and drink of the water of life that he and he alone has to offer water that truly truly satisfies the hungry soul water that springs up into everlasting life and fortunately for that woman she accepted his offer and was born again and through her very simple witness to the people in her hometown the village of sychar uh, most of that village was saved and they Not the Jews, but the Samaritans became the very first people to proclaim that Jesus was not only the Christ or the anointed one, the Messiah of the Jews, but that he was the Savior of the world. And you can find that in John 4 verse 42 the samaritans knew he was the messiah and the savior of the world that he had come not just for the jews but that he had come for the samaritans and he had come for the gentiles he had come for the whole world to save everyone and then following his two day stay in that village of Sychar, the Lord went on to Galilee. Remember, he had been down in Jerusalem and Judea, he passed through Samaria to the north, and then he worked his way up into Galilee, which is up in the north, where he began his great Galilean ministry. And that great Galilean ministry lasted approximately a year and a half. After being rejected (coughs) by his own hometown people in Nazareth remember he was almost thrown off a cliff for having gone into the synagogue there and boldly proclaim that he was the fulfillment of the messianic prophecy found in isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2 where it said he actually said he read it to the people and then he said this day this prophecy is fulfilled it says in that prophecy that um that he was the servant of jehovah he was anointed by the holy spirit to preach the gospel to the poor to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captive. And then it went on to say that he would restore sight to the blind that he would set the bruised at liberty, and that he would proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Well, when he said, this very day, this has been fulfilled in your sight, they said, oh no, this cannot be. We know you. You're Joseph and Mary's son. You were raised here. We've watched you all your life. You're just one of us. And they thought that was blasphemy, so they went to push him off the cliff, but of course... He passed through the midst of them. Well, after his rejection in Nazareth, the Lord then made the city of Capernaum his headquarters for his great Galilean ministry. And by the way, that also fulfilled a prophecy found in Isaiah uh, chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, that he would make Capernaum his um, headquarters. And you can read that, uh, that at home. I won't get into what that is. But anyway, then in the next group of lessons... In our life of Christ study we covered a number of events of events which occurred during this great Galilean ministry which was a time for the Lord of growing popularity because he was performing many many miracles I and mean, he was preaching with an unprecedented authority which totally amazed the people they had only heard rabbis preached to them before and rabbis would always quote some former rabbi they'd say this rabbi taught this and so they would repeat what someone else had said but the Lord Jesus said you have heard it said so and so but I say unto you and his authority was just coming from directly from him as if he was God and of course we know he is God so anyway let me just quickly give you an overview of all the various events which occurred during this time Or this phase of the Lord's earthly ministry. And this is the first year and a half, basically, of his three and a half years of public ministry. He healed, first of all, a nobleman's son. And remember, he did that from a distance. That's why there's that line there to show you. He was not right there by the little boy's bedside. He was at a distance of some 22 miles when he healed that boy, the nobleman's dying son. And then he healed... A demoniac in Capernaum and that was in Mark one twenty-five. then he healed Peter's mother-in-law of a great fever he healed her instantly she in fact got up and began to serve him and the disciples some food and then he healed a worshipful leper who was uh, then told to tell no man what he had done but he did, didn't he? He was so excited about it, he went and told people anyway. That was in Matthew 8, 4. And then he healed and even forgave the sin of a paralytic who had been lowered through the roof of, they think it was Peter's house, by four of his friends. And then he called a former tax collector by the name of Levi to be one of his disciples. And we know that Levi became who? Who? see it up here right Matthew he then gave two parables the parable of the new cloth patch and the parable of the new wine pouch in order to defend his disciples for feasting instead of fasting remember they were accused of um, living it up and feasting when John the Baptist's disciples were fasting and so they were criticized for that and the Lord gave those two parables if you want to know more about those parables you can go ahead and get the notes for that and the cassette tape back whatever it was we'll look it up for you because I don't remember what lesson it was and then he went over to the pool of Bethesda where an invalid had been sitting there at the side of that pool for 38 years and had never been healed of his um, of his disease and he did this on what day of the week the sabbath and defended his actions of course the pharisees were upset with the man because he was carrying his pallet they weren't happy for him that after 38 long years of suffering he was finally able to get up and walk and even carry his pallet but they jumped on his case because he was working so you weren't allowed to carry anything not even a pen on the Sabbath day. So they said, you know, you've broken the Sabbath, you're carrying your pallet. But the Lord, in order to defend his action of healing this man on the Sabbath day, then gave a great discourse on judgment and the resurrection power of God the Son. And then the Lord went on to do two more things on the Sabbath. He was going to really drive home his point about the fact that he is the lord of the sabbath he uh, allowed his men to pluck grains of ear uh, ears of grain on the sabbath you know in order to have something to eat and then he healed a man with a withered hand and he also purposely did that on the sabbath in fact he even did it in a synagogue to really get their attention he wanted to teach the religious rulers about their foolish, unscriptural traditions that which they had accumulated and added to the law regarding the, the Sabbath. He wanted to teach them the truth about the Sabbath reverence and practice, and that God's laws regarding the Sabbath allowed for acts of necessity. Remember, he gave the example of the fact that David ate the temple showbread when he was starving. And he went in and asked the uh, high priest if he had anything to eat. And the high priest gave him the showbread right out of the, the temple. And so the Lord was saying that, you know, acts of necessity are fine to do. It is okay for all of us to eat on Sunday. All right? God allows for that. And also for acts of worship. And he gave an example of of pointing out to them, don't the priests even work on the Sabbath? Of course, the Sabbath back in that day was Saturday. Before the resurrection, the Sabbath was Saturday. But the priests worked harder on the Sabbath on Saturday than they did on any other day of the week. And then the third thing that God the Father allows is for acts of mercy. And he gave an example there about um, uh, if one of the Pharisees' sheep would fall into a pit that Pharisee would be the first one there because that was his property and he cared about it to have a, a rope and pull that sheep out of the out of the pit and I think later on he gave an example of an ox that wouldn't you pull your own ox because an ox is even more expensive than a sheep and of course they knew they would if just because it was the Sabbath they wouldn't allow it to lie there and let a wolf come along and eat it up So he said that the Lord on the Sabbath allows for acts of necessity, acts of worship, and acts of mercy. And that was why he allowed his men to eat the corn on the Sabbath. They were hungry and they needed to eat. And why he healed the man's withered arm. It was an act of mercy. Well, the Pharisees, we found, responded to the Lord's wise teaching there, which they couldn't refute because, again, he used their own scripture to do it, they responded in three ways. Number one, they were furious because he had publicly humiliated them in front of people, the multitudes, with his irrefutable arguments. We saw that in Luke 6, verse 11. Second, they wanted to kill him because he had rejected their traditions And third, they entered into an alliance with the Herodians, and normally the Herodians were their enemies. But in this case, because they hated Jesus more than they hated the Herodians, they got into an alliance with the Herodians about how they might go about destroying this man, Jesus. So that was their great response to his very wise teaching. And then after a night of prayer, the Lord selected... 12 men to become his apostles and those 12 men were peter and andrew his brother james and john and they were brothers philip and bartholomew and sometimes you will see his name listed as nathaniel they are one in the same matthew who we said was a former tax collector named levi and then there was thomas and everybody knows him as doubting thomas Uh, Didymus. He was a twin. His name in Greek means twin. So there was another one around somewhere that looked just like him. And then there was James, the son of Alphaeus, a different James from the brother of John. And there was Simon, the zealot. He had been a zealot before he came to the Lord. And a zealot was one of those who hated the Romans with a passion, and they wanted to free Israel from Roman oppression, and they would actually sneak up on the Roman soldiers at night and slit their throats. Well, Simon was one of those before he was saved. And then there was Thaddeus, and who was the last one? Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. And that was where we ended year number one. Of our Life of Christ study was with the appointment of the 12 apostles. And then we spent our entire second year in our Life of Christ study studying the greatest sermon which has ever, ever been preached by the greatest preacher who has ever, ever preached. And that was the Sermon on the Mount, preached by the Lord Jesus Christ, of course. And it's found in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. I had no idea when we began that sermon that it would take us a whole year to go through it, just three chapters, but it did, and I don't regret one minute of it, because I think it was the the year I grew spiritually more than any other year of my life, and I think those of us that were in this study probably would agree, there was so much in that study. It really wouldn't hurt us one day to do it over again. And in that wonderful truth-packed discourse, we learned about the true road to happiness. If you really want to be on that highway to happiness, if you really desire, and I can't imagine you don't want to be, if you really want to have happiness, joy in your life, you need to study the Beatitudes. That is the true road to happiness. Those are the divine paradoxes, we called them, of the Scripture the Beatitudes that's how the Sermon on the Mount starts you know blessed are the poor in spirit for they shall inherit the kingdom of God and it doesn't make sense to the world it's exactly the opposite of what the world would tell us the world would not tell us that blessed are the poor it would say oh no blessed are the, ha- the rich happy are the rich but Jesus says no Happy are the poor. And that is not speaking of your material wealth, but your attitude, your humility. But again, the world would say happy are not the humble and the meek, but the proud, you know. And then, of course, it said happy are the sad, and that really is a divine paradox, isn't it? But again, it was talking about mourning over your sinful condition, your, your helpless, hopeless condition apart from Christ, because that's what it takes to be saved. You have to realize that you are poor in spirit and that you are a sinner you need to mourn over your sin and turn to him and it also said you know happy are the persecuted total opposite of what the world would tell us and um, he went on to say that it's the meek who would inherit the earth and the world would tell us no way it's the mighty that would inherit the earth so we had a wonderful time studying the beatitudes and then we learned about the christians responsibility to the world in the similitudes. Did you ever hear them? There's the Beatitudes and then there's the similitudes, which immediately follow the Beatitudes. And the similitudes, there's only two of them, are that we are to be light, here's the light, and salt. You know, we're to let our light so shine before men that they might see our good works and glorify our Father, which is in heaven. We're not to hide our light under a bushel. Totally gets rid of any type of uh, monastic type of lifestyle. Anyone who totally separates themselves as a Christian from the world is not doing what the scripture says. And there are groups of people, Christians, who just totally remove themselves from the world and live, you know, just amongst themselves. And, uh think that they have to be totally separated but God said no we should not hide our light under a bushel we need to be letting our light shine before men we need to be in the world but not of the world and then also we're to be the salt of the world we're to make men and women lost men and women thirsty so that they'll come and seek the, the water the living water that truly satisfies so we discussed the similitudes and then we learned what Jesus had to say about the absolute reliability of the scriptures. That every single jot and tittle, that means every time you cross a T or dot an I, basically in the Hebrew, every single jot and tittle will be fulfilled. And that tells me that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and that we should consider every little word in the Bible as... God's word and he put it there for a reason and we are to find out what that reason is it doesn't just contain truth it is truth and the Lord himself is the one that said that and then we learned about the Jews wrong interpretations of the law um, in such subjects as murder talked about murder you know he said you know you've heard it said that thou shalt not murder but I say unto you even if you're angry at your brother You've sinned. Or if you call your brother what? Raka, a fool, that you've sinned. And they'd never heard that before. You know, they thought they could pretty well handle not murdering somebody, but not to be angry at someone or to call somebody a fool, that's carrying it a little too far. But that's the kind of holiness the Lord is looking for. And he went on to talk about adultery. You know, you've heard it said that you should not commit adultery, but I say unto you, if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, that you've already committed adultery in your heart. And he, we talked about divorce, and we have a mini album of two cassette tapes for anyone that might be interested in um, on divorce. Well, First of all, we taught what the Old Testament teaches about divorce, and then we went on to teach what the New Testament has to say about divorce. And so there's that tape cassette out there, that, that little album out there, if you're interested in that. And we talked about the importance of taking oaths or vows. We talked about retaliation. You know, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. We are not to retaliate. And we also talked about love. And then we looked at what he had to say about hypocritical giving and fasting and tithing, which was what the Pharisees and the scribes were so good at doing. Everything was just external. And then after that, we went on to discuss the perfect prayer pattern, which was given to us in what is commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer. You know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Everybody calls that the Lord's Prayer. But what did we say it really should be called? Exactly, the Disciples' Prayer. It's our prayer. This is not a prayer that Jesus prayed, the Lord's Prayer. Because he would not say, um, forgive me of my debts, would he? Because Jesus was sinless. This is the prayer that we should pray. And not wrote, you know, just sit down and think you've prayed your prayer for the day if you recite the Lord's Prayer. This is a pattern for our praying. And again we have a little mini album on the Lord's Prayer if you wanna get into that in more detail. And then as we continued, we discussed what we called the rules for the redeemed. Again, we have a an album on that. I think it it contains six different messages. We talked about the treasure rule. We talked about the worry rule. Do you remember that one? Oh boy, we had fun with that one. That worry is a sin. And we talked about the criticism rule. I'll let you let that soak in a minute. Can you imagine being in a worse predicament than that little goldfish? (laughs) We talked about the criticism rule. And that's one, you know, worry and criticism. You know, maybe all of us aren't out there. I hope we're not committing murder and adultery and getting divorced and all these type things. But boy, when it comes down to worrying and criticizing, that hits home with a lot of us, doesn't it? We have to watch that old tongue. And we talked about the prayer rule. And we talked about the golden rule. Doing unto others what we would have them do unto us. And that was under the um, head title of the Rules for the Redeemed. We're still in the Sermon on the Mount. So you see he covered a lot in there. Then, after laying down his principles and his precepts for godly, righteous living, and by the way, the whole theme for the Sermon on the Mount is righteousness. After doing that, the Lord Jesus, in concluding his most famous sermon, then presented his listeners with the choice of entering into his kingdom or not entering into his kingdom. He had instructed the people on righteous character, first of all, then on righto- their righteous responsibility to the world as light and salt, then on righteous inner and outer morality, and even on righteous motives regarding our religious practices, and even righteous attitudes toward material things and finally then in a series of comparisons he invited as he still invites today he invited the people to choose between two diverse interpretations of what is demanded for acceptance into heaven and those two interpretations are either Christ's interpretation or man's interpretation which was exemplified, man's interpretation was exemplified by the work system, which had been um, established by the Jewish religious system at that time, the Jewish religious leaders. You see, there are really only two systems of religion in all of the world. There is the system of works, or human achievement, or there is the system of grace, which is divine accomplishment. There's either human achievement or divine accomplishment. These are the two interpretations and the only two we have about how we can get to heaven. Either man can work his way there or it is totally a divine accomplishment. There is either the system which operates in the flesh, you know, by what the hand basically can do, what can I do to earn my way with my hands, or there is the system which operates in faith, Based upon what the heart does. In other words, there is either God's way or there is man's way. And God's way is through Jesus Christ, his Son, and him alone. Man's way is much broader, isn't it? God's way is very narrow, man's way is very broad, and it includes thousands of religious systems. Forms, gods, cults, philosophies, ideas, all kinds of isms. But each and every one of them is built upon human accomplishment. So all of this boils down to a choice. The Lord Jesus gave an invitation at the end of the Sermon on the Mount to choose his way by inviting us, he invited us To enter in at the straight gate, which he said, even though it's far more narrow, is the only gate and the only way which leads to eternal life. Whereas the, the wide gate and the broad way leadeth, he told us, unto destruction. So you see, truth is narrow, isn't it? I mean, that's why if you're a Christian, people will accuse you of being very narrow-minded. But if you think about it, truth is very narrow. There's only one answer for the equation 2 plus 2, and what is it? Four. Well, somebody might say, well, you're very narrow-minded. Why couldn't it be 3 and a half? or even 4 and a half? Well, because it isn't. There's only one answer, and the answer is four. Truth is narrow Everyone who's ever been a teacher knows that when you grade that paper. It's either right or it's wrong. Jesus said, I am the way, not a way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. I was in a Sunday school class one time in another church at another time in my life, and I remember the the Sunday school teacher the Sunday school teacher who was an elder in the church said to the whole class he, he said I believe that Jesus Christ is just one way that he's the way for the western world and who are we to say that Buddha or Muhammad or, or someone else isn't the way for the eastern world and my husband and I were horrified and we said well what about the scripture that says no man cometh to the father but by me you know it didn't matter what the Word of God said, it was what he thought it should be, the way he thought it should be. But that's what, you know, is in some of our churches. It's out there, people who believe that. They just think that God wouldn't be so narrow-minded. But he's only He's given us, I mean, he died for us. He's given us this way. He's given us this way of escape. It's our problem if we refuse it, because we think we're smarter than him. And he also said in the Good Shepherd sermon, you remember this? He said, I am the door, not just one door, a door. I am the door by me if any man enter in. And there's that open invitation. Anyone can go through it. You just have to think that you're not smarter than God and go ahead and believe him and step through the door. If you step through the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, believing he died for you, then you shall be saved, he said. And Acts 4.12 similarly says that there is salvation in no other man because there is no other name under heaven. And that includes every name that has ever been or ever will be. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved other than the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And 1 Timothy 2.5, written by the Apostle Paul, tells us that there is one God and there is only one mediator between God and man one mediator and it isn't the Pope and it isn't Mary and it isn't Buddha or Mohammed or Margaret Eddie Patterson whatever her whole name is uh, who started Christian Science or any of the cult leaders it is the Lord Jesus Christ it is the man Christ Jesus read it for yourself 1st Timothy 2 5 so the gate is straight And it is very narrow, but it is the gate which leads to life, to eternal life. And that was how he ended the Sermon on the Mount. And if you will notice that in that invitation, he did uh, say that it was not enough just to stand and admire the gate. He said, enter ye in at the straight gate. He was beseeching men to obey him. That's a command. It's not just enough to stand there and admire Jesus Christ and say, Yes, isn't he wonderful? Yes, isn't he a great teacher? Isn't he a great prophet? Isn't he a great miracle worker? Or whatever you want to say about him. You cannot just admire him. You have to enter in. In other words, you must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. And we are born again, we talked about this last week, we are born again at the moment that we step forth in faith and enter through that straight gate. And that straight gate or that door is Him. By admitting Christ into our hearts, by surrendering our wills to His will, by allowing Him to sit as the rightful king of over our hearts the rightful the throne that he belongs on instead of um, having self on the throne Um, and by of course also repenting of our sins you can't be saved by just believing he died on the cross you also need to know that you're a sinner and he died for your sins and that you repent of those sins that you want to be forgiven of those sins. You have to mourn, as it says in the Beatitudes, over your sins. You have to know you're poor in spirit, that you're spiritually bankrupt apart from his saving grace, and ask him for the forgiveness that he so much wants to give to you. And that is how you are born again. Once you have done that with a true open heart, genuine, then he, he will send the Holy Spirit to come and indwell you. And that's what it actually literally means in the Greek. To be born again means to be born from above. And you're born from above when God the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within you. And then when you've done this, he ended the whole thing by saying, you will be like that wise man who built his house upon what? A rock. And you won't be, so that when the storms of life come, And when the hurricane Franz come, (laughs) we had such an example of this a few weeks ago, and even when that storm of death comes, you will be secure in Christ because you will have built your foundation on him and you will have nothing to worry about. You will be secure for all of eternity. If you don't, what's going to happen? If you build your house not on a rock, when the storms come... You're going to crumble. Your whole house is going to crumble. You're going to go into destruction eternally. So I would suggest that all of us build our houses on the rock. On Christ's solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Then upon completing that greatest sermon ever preached, the Lord Jesus went on to heal a centurion's servant and that Roman I mean Roman yeah he was Roman uh, but he was a Gentile the centurion you remember what a centurion is he's a Roman soldier who's in charge of how many men a hundred you know we get the word century <laughs> hundred years centurion he was in charge of a hundred men that man that Gentile centurion who came to the Lord on behalf of his uh, servant his dying servant was one of only two people in all the scripture, who was commended by Jesus Christ for his great faith. Do you remember that? He was an incredible man. His faith was incredible. The centurion, you see, understood that Christ's authority was so great that it enabled him to exercise power over disease merely by his spoken word, by the power of his spoken word. But that wasn't all that the centurion believed. He also recognized the fact that the command from the Lord's lips did not even have to be spoken in the presence of the one who was being healed in order for it to be authoritative. In other words, he believed that Jesus could perform miracles at a distance, that he just didn't have to be there and put his hand on someone, that he could speak it from a distance. Do you believe that today? Where is the Lord today? He's up there. If he desires to heal you, do you think he can heal you from a distance? Of course he can. All he has to do is say it, and it'll be done. The centurion understood what most of the Jews didn't understand. He understood that Jesus did not have to physically see, touch, or speak to the one who was in need of healing. He believed that the word of Jesus Christ was sufficient and absolutely authoritative and that is actually probably more than most christians in churches today even believe that his word is absolutely powerful sufficient and authoritative because there are so many even pastors who do not believe i don't have my bible but that the word of god is absolutely authoritative and that it is sufficient and they will send you to psychologists and psychiatrists and different but you don't need them the word of God is sufficient and it is absolutely authoritative you don't need to add anything to it no other books just the word of God so he was commended even though this man had been raised as a pagan and had probably very little access to the scriptures I mean Even if he had some access to some of the Old Testament books, we do have to remember that the New Testament hadn't even been written. And the Lord Jesus was still in the early part of his ministry. So this pagan man, to believe these things about Jesus, that he could heal from a distance and that he had such authority and that he could speak a word and it would be done... This man's faith was incredible, and that's why, the, why Jesus, it told us in Luke 7, 9, that the Lord Jesus marveled at his great faith. You know, the Lord only marveled at two times in all the, all the Bible all the gospels at least there's only two times when it says that jesus marveled over anything and one time was what we just mentioned here that he marveled over this man this gentile man's great faith you know when the other time he marveled was this is sad he marveled over the great unbelief of his own people the jews And I think this is sort of a foreshadowment of what was to come, that the Jews would reject him and that it would be the Gentiles who would accept him. The church today, as we know, is made up primarily of Gentile believers. Anyway, the only other individual to ever be commended by Christ for their great faith was also a Gentile. Isn't that interesting? he commended two people for great faith. One was a Gentile man, the centurion. The other was a Gentile woman, the Syrophoenician woman, who persistently besought the Lord Jesus Christ on behalf of her demonically possessed daughter. And remember how the Lord was, it seemed like he was being so rude to her, but he he wasn't. He was really testing her faith and she passed with flying colors. But he said, you know, it's, it's not right for me to to give what was it the crumbs to the the dogs I mean it was it really it sounded horrible but when we dissected it it wasn't so bad because he wasn't speaking about the raving maniac dogs around the area but it was talking about like a little pet puppy but anyway she passed the test because she really did her faith was tremendous and she knew that Jesus could heal her daughter and he did and he commended her for her great faith so I think that's interesting that Gentiles so early in his ministry were the ones who had the faith. And for the most part, the Jews did not. Then, after immediately healing, following the healing of the centurion's servant, he spoke the prophecy of Matthew 8 verses 10 to 12 and it's no wonder that he spoke this after what had just happened he said verily i say unto you i have not found so great faith he was speaking here about the centurion no not in israel and i say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and there he was speaking about from the east and the west of israel so he's speaking about gentiles he's telling the jews many will come from gentile nations And shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Oh, I mean, that horrified the Jews. How could this be? They thought of the Gentiles as dogs. They were terrible barbarians to them. To think that they would sit down in the kingdom of heaven with Abraham and eat, you know, with Abraham, that was horrible. But he went on to say something even worse. He went on to say this. He said, but the children of the kingdom, and they knew there that that was, he was speaking of them, the children, the covenant children of the kingdom, that was the Jews, shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Can you imagine the reaction (laughs) to that little speech that he gave? What he was doing there was prophetically predicting the gathering of the Gentiles into his kingdom by the preaching of the gospel, which would then, of course, as we know, culminate in the sitting down of the Gentiles at the Lord the Lamb's, um, what is it called, the uh, the wedding supper, the supper of the Lamb, that we will one day sit it down at that great banquet table and um, have our wedding supper with the Lord, and that's what he's predicting there. But the idea that the Gentiles would be in the kingdom of heaven was so absolutely abhorrent to the jews um, and here jesus again was upsetting their traditional apple cart that they um they were furious about this the jews had been taught of course for centuries by their rabbis that simply because they were of the seed of abraham and isaac and jacob in other words simply because they were jews They would inherit the kingdom of heaven, you know, provided that they observed their legal ceremonies and their feast days and all that sort of thing. Yet Jesus here was now crashing through their misconceived security blanket by telling them that many of them would, in fact, be cast into outer darkness, where there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, they'd be cast into hell while many of the Gentiles would be feasting at his table. So he was telling them here, in essence, that it was not their Jewish blood which saves them, but their faith in him. But of course, we know they didn't like that at all. And so even more now, they really want to get get rid of him. Following this, the Lord then walked 25 miles or so, to, into the Jezreel Valley, to the city of Nain, N-A-I-N, where he performed what? Anybody remember? His, right, his first resurrection from the dead. He did had three of them. This is the first. He, he himself was the fourth, but this is the first of someone else. And uh, it was the widow's son of Nain. And it's interesting to realize that Nain, as you see here on the map, was a neighboring town of Shunan, which was um, where 800 years earlier, if you remember, the prophet Elisha had raised a Shunammite's son from the dead after a great deal of effort. I mean he had to go to all kinds of. remember he laid himself out on top of the boy and he besought God and prayed and prayed and it took him a while to do it but he did resurrect the Shunammites son and the only other raising from the dead that Israel had ever witnessed had also occurred in this area a little bit further away but in a town called Zarephath where the prophet Elijah had raised another widow's son from the dead that was the widow of Zarephath and again Elijah had gone to a great deal of effort to do that it took him he did basically the same thing i can't remember which was which but one of them put eyes to eyes on the child nose to nose mouth to mouth you know and and they were praying the whole time and uh, one of them had to do that 3 times and it was just a great deal of effort but the two boys in those two occasions were raised from the dead. So, anyway, the people of Nain were a people who were acutely aware of their significance as being in, you know, the only area in the whole world where any prophets of God had ever, ever performed such a miracle as raising someone from death. So, what better place could the Lord have chosen? Um, to perform his first miracle. What better place for he who is the resurrection and the life to perform his first raising from the dead, which he did again also as Elijah and Elisha for a widow's son. I think it's interesting that all three were for widow's sons. And he did it with just the omnipotent ease of a mere spoken word. All he did was say, young man, And he had to say young man, just like he had to say Lazarus and like he had to say Tabitha to the young girl because if he didn't qualify who he was speaking to, what would have happened? Everybody who had ever died would have obeyed his command and come out of their graves no matter how long they'd been dead. So in each case, he named who he was talking to. Here he said, young man, arise. And this man was on the way to being buried. And he sat up. He obeyed, he sat up, and he came to life. And this fantastic miracle, of course, demonstrated to us the Lord's absolute authority over death itself, even over death. I mean, he'd already showed he had authority over demons and disease and every kind of problem that mankind has ever had, and now he was showing he even had authority over death. So it testified not only to the citizens of Nain, but to all of us, that it is his word which gives life, his word. And then he went on to pronounce an extremely serious series of woe judgments upon three very uh, privileged cities of Galilee. Because the Lord Jesus Christ, the very Son of the living God, had spent the most time and performed the most miracles in these three cities and yet the majority, the vast majority of their citizens did not repent and submit to him as Lord they enjoyed him he was a very special visitor, and they loved to see him walking in their town because they loved to bring their sick friends to him for healing, or if they themselves were sick. They loved, I mean, he was spectacular to have around, um, but they did not allow his person or his presence or his proclamation, proclamation, his message, to make a difference in their lives. He was just sort of a, a thrill for them to have around he made very interesting talk for conversation you know if you had someone over for dinner let's talk about this Jesus of Nazareth great table conversation they liked him but that was all so they committed what we could call the sin of what the sin of indifference and there are many many people like this they are not openly hostile to the Lord Jesus Christ but they certainly don't allow him to influence their lives do they and they don't submit their wills to his will they don't allow him to be the Lord the absolute Lord over their life they'll say oh yeah I know Jesus I like Jesus he's a great guy but he absolutely makes no difference in their lives. They just keep on living the way they've always lived. Throughout history, many, many, many people have thought that they could remain neutral and indifferent to the Lord Jesus Christ. But he himself said, and he said it right after this uh, these judgments on these cities, he said, he that is not with me is what? Against me. You cannot remain neutral if you don't choose to. To submit to him, you're automatically against him. He that is not with me is against me. To do nothing about Jesus Christ is to remain under the condemnation of sin. Now the Lord's woes of denunciation upon the three cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum also taught us that there are degrees of punishment in hell. Because the Lord said, It shall be more tolerable for Sodom than in the day of judgment than for thee. Matthew 11:24. And there are other passages in the scripture, you'll be looking those up in your homework, which do definitely teach us that there are degrees of judgment in hell. Why would it be more tolerable for the land of Sodom, for, for the people of Sodom? You know, Sodom was where Lot lived. And Sodom was destroyed, you know, just by fire and brimstone. There's nothing left of it because those people had really sinned. They were, Most of them were homosexuals. But why would it be more tolerable for them than it would be for, let's say, the city of Capernaum? Well, because the ancient Gentile pagan city of Sodom, and he also mentioned Tyre, and Sidon, which were also, they were Gentile cities, they had not had the advantage of having the very light of the world himself walking in their midst, nor did they have the privilege of witnessing firsthand so many of his miracles, which authenticated his divine authority over every single realm of life and even death. And those ancient Gentile cities were not privileged to directly hear the voice of the Son of God himself teaching and preaching truth and godly wisdom and the gospel of the kingdom, as did the first century citizens of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, cities up there on the Sea of Galilee. The most privileged people who have ever lived were those citizens. So, because they rejected him, their punishment will be severe in hell. Now, hopefully, after the resurrection, some of those citizens did get saved, you know. But the ones that didn't, their punishment will be greater than even the citizens of Sodom. So the important biblical principle that we learned from the Lord's uh, denouncement upon those three cities is that to whom much is given what? Much is expected. In response. And if the response happens to be negative or even neutral, indifferent, then the punishment is going to be greater. Degrees of punishment are determined in proportion to the degree of rejected opportunity and privilege for the light of the truth of the gospel. And that principle, I do believe, puts everyone. Everyone who has been privileged to be born in the United States of America, I think that puts us in grave danger if we reject and/or even remain neutral and indifferent to Christ. Because, other than those three cities there in Galilee, I don't think there has ever been a people more privileged than Americans. Especially in the 20th century. You can turn on a radio station, find the gospel preached. You can go to just abundant stores and find Bibles and Christian books. I mean, it's just in the airwaves, it's everywhere before us. We are without excuse because we have so much, and to whom much is given much is expected and if that is rejected then greater will be our punishment and greater will be the punishment I believe on the United States itself because we have really fallen haven't we it's very serious the Lord takes it very seriously and we should well following his denunciation on those three cities our compassionate savior I mean it's really hard for him when he gives a message like them that not not to then turn around and be compassionate, and he was, because he then gave an invitation to individuals to receive him. His ministry here was at a point of transition. He had presented his unrefutable messianic credentials to the nation of Israel, but he had been rejected both now in Jerusalem and likewise, for the most part, up in Galilee. So he, he began at this point to turn his back on the nation at large and focus instead upon individuals. To those few people who were sensitive to the drawing work of the Holy Spirit of God and to the heavy burdens of their own sins, Jesus invited them to come unto him for rest because he promised them that his yoke is what? Easy and his burden is light that's a very wonderful invitation that he gives in Matthew 11 verses 28 to 30 and at that time we had everybody memorize that because it is a beautiful beautiful passage he was no longer giving an announcement to a nation about a kingdom but he was giving an invitation to individuals about personal rest and here he was referring to spiritual rest The Lord Jesus invites us to have a rest from our human efforts to earn salvation. He offers us a rest from the yoke of religion. And he offers us a rest from the worries and the burdens of this old world. And the rest that he gives comes from knowing that our eternal destiny is secure in the omnipotent hands of the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It is a rest from the search for the answers to life. And it's, if that's the kind of rest that someone here maybe has been looking for, if you're looking for the answer to life why you're here, where you're going. If that's the kind of rest you want, then all you have to do is simply accept his invitation to come unto him. And then what does he say after that? After you've come unto him, he says, learn of me. And that's exactly what we're doing here in this study. We're trying to learn of him, learn of his life, every detail of his life. Now, there was one heavily laden woman Who apparently took the Lord's invitation to come unto him to find rest. She took that invitation seriously. And when she did, she found that she was indeed unshackled from her deep guilt over having lived such a carnal and sinful lifestyle which had basically crushed out by that point in her life crushed out all happiness that she had ever had because she had not only known the rejection of her family I'm sure but also the rejection of herself when you sin who's the one you really hate the most? it's yourself she hated and despaired of life itself I'm sure. But she knew of no way out. She had been in bondage to her human carnality for probably years. But now, after hearing the Lord Jesus Christ's invitation to come in him, to him in faith, she felt like a new creature. And her only consuming desire was now to be near this one who had set her free from her bondage to sin and from that awful burden that she was carrying around from her guilt she had been a promiscuous woman she wanted to give him all she had now and so she, and she wanted to be yoked to him as he had said in that invitation take my yoke upon you she wanted to be yoked to him she wanted to pour out upon him whatever she had and to cast it in total cast herself in total to sur- surrender to him So knowing that he was that night supping with Simon the Pharisee, she put aside all pride and entered into the forbidden courtyard of this self-righteous Pharisee. She had, you see, in order to do that, she had died to self. She had died to self, and her heart was overflowing with gratitude, so she braved the scornful and the icy glares of all the other men seated around that table that day because she only saw Jesus. Her eyes were focused on him, and her cup of joy was running over. We can be sure as she then saw that deep, deep look of love which he returned to her. And when that happened, I'm sure that she just began to unashamedly weep and cry. And she fell down at his feet. She undid her hair, which was something women weren't to, to do. But again, it showed us that she had died to self, and she didn't care what the others thought. She, her, her tears fell on his feet. She used her hair to dry them. And then her her love was overflowing so much, she just couldn't help it. But she just began to kiss the precious feet of the one who loved her when no one else did. And it no matter, it no longer mattered to her what anybody else thought because she knew that Jesus loved her. And that's true for us. It doesn't matter, as I said before, doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter where you're coming from. It doesn't matter how much you've sinned or how much you've messed up your life. And it doesn't matter what other people think. Believe it or not, I know we're all so tuned in to what does so-and-so think. I wonder how they, how they think about me, you know. Who cares as long as the Lord Jesus Christ loves you? That's all that matters. That's all that matters. So just pour yourself out as this precious woman did. Just pour yourself out on him. Now, Simon of course immediately thought to himself now he didn't say this out loud but he thought to himself that there could be no way that his guest could be the true messiah because even a prophet of god much less a messiah would not he would know what manner of woman this was and would not allow her to touch him So he was thinking this cannot be the Messiah as he's claiming because he would never allow such a sinful woman into his presence, nor would he allow her to kiss and touch his feet. Simon's problem was what? Human pride and his worldly wisdom had blinded him to the degree that he could not see his own sinful heart. You see, he could see the external sins of someone else, you know, a lot of self righteous people are very good at pointing out the external sins in others, but what he couldn't see was the internal sins of himself. He couldn't see his own sins of the Spirit. But his most serious mistake was that he was blind to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord actually, it was interesting when we studied that, we found that the Lord actually did prove to him that he was much more than a prophet of God in that he knew what Simon was thinking. Simon was thinking he couldn't possibly be the Messiah. Well, the Lord knew what he was thinking, and he answered Simon's unverbalized thoughts with the parable of the two debtors in Luke 7, verses 41 and 43. And in that parable he taught the principle that devotion to Christ is in direct proportion to one's appreciation of forgiveness. In other words, greater pardon brings greater love. The woman, I got new glasses and they just keep sliding, they're too big. The woman had lavished great love on the Lord because she had realized, you see, the depth of her debt to him and the greatness of her pardon but simon on the other hand did not see that he had a debt at all he he thought he was one of the first ones that would get into heaven and therefore he showed no love for christ remember when christ came into his house the lord mentioned this he said you didn't greet me with a, even a kiss She's kissing my feet. You didn't even kiss my cheek, which was the common courtesy in that day, nor did you have a servant come and wash my feet, which was also the common courtesy if you were having a guest for dinner. He said, you didn't even do that. Simon did not see that Christ was the creditor who could freely pardon his debt because Simon's pride inhibited him from seeing his own spiritual bankruptcy. So you see, we must see ourselves as debtors with a deficit which is so large that there is no way that we can ever pay it. No matter how many works we perform or how much worldly wisdom we gain, there's no way we can ever pay back. So we must realize that Jesus and Jesus alone can freely pardon our debt. And that's what that parable of the two debtors was all about. Well, shortly after this incident, the religious rulers of Israel spoke their official decision. There was a delegation of Jews that had come out of Jerusalem, and they had brought forth a dumb and blind, um, demonically possessed man. I mean, they found the worst case they could, other than someone who was dead. This guy was not only dumb and deaf, he was blind, and he was demonically possessed he was a real mess they brought him to Jesus and of course the Lord healed him and when the Lord did that what did this delegation of official Jewish religious leaders say to him they said this fellow doth not cast out devils but by Beelzebub another word for Satan the Lord of the filth or the Lord of the flies the prince of the devils so instead of accepting the kingdom of God which he offered They denounced him as a representative of the kingdom of darkness. And that was their official decision on behalf of Israel. And then by way of two parables, the parable of the divided kingdom and the parable of subduing the strong man, the Lord Jesus Christ proved not only that their accusation against him was illogical, very illogical, Satan would not divide against himself, but that they were very prejudiced, willfully prejudiced against him and that they of course were spiritually blind and then in a very serious passage and i'll end with this he went on to then um, talk about the unpardonable sin which is blasphemy against the holy spirit now many people have wondered why blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is pardonable when blasphemy against God the Father can be forgiven and blasphemy against the Lord Jesus Christ can be forgiven. You know, they say, well, aren't all members of the Trinity equal? And the answer, of course, is what? Yes, of course they're equal. So why is blasphemy against God and blasphemy against Christ forgivable, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is not forgivable? Well, it's very simply, this is the reason. It's because the Holy Spirit is the final witness of the Godhead. You see, when the leaders of Israel rejected the witness of John the Baptist. As to the person of Jesus Christ, they were rejecting the witness of God the Father because John was a prophet of God. When he said, Behold the Lamb of God, he was telling the nation who Jesus was. When they rejected him and his message, they were rejecting the witness of God. Also when they rejected all the Old Testament scriptures which pointed to Christ as the Messiah. They were rejecting the witness of God the Father who wrote the Old Testament. And then when the Jews refused the Lord's own witness, his own testimony as to who he is, they were resisting or rejecting the witness of God the Son. So they would rejected the witness of God the Father, then they rejected the witness of God the Son. The only witness remaining was the Holy Spirit, right? God the Holy Spirit. And he, the Holy Spirit, testified of Christ's person by way of the supernatural works. You know, the miracles which Jesus performed in his power, in the Holy Spirit's power. So when the religious rulers here, at this point, pronounced that Jesus performed his exorcisms of demons... By the power of Satan, they were rejecting, they were resisting the final witness of the Godhead, the witness of the Holy Spirit. So you see, there were no more witnesses to be given. That was it. So the nation of Israel, represented by her religious rulers, had committed the unpardonable sin. However, this did not mean that salvation was not available to individuals at that time. It, it was, and it always is. And the only way today that a person can commit the unpardonable sin is by a continual, lifelong rejection of the forgiveness which God freely offers through the shed blood and the death of his son. The unpardonable sin today is committed when an individual continually up through the day of his or her death, up to that last breathing moment, resists the powerful work, powerful work of the Holy Spirit in his attempt to draw that one to Christ. In other words, the unpardonable sin is refusing to ask for pardon for sin up to the point of your death and that is the only way that someone can commit it today now next week we'll pick up from there and we'll go on we didn't quite make it through lesson 60 we maybe made it through about 55 or something like that but we'll just pick up and go from here let's pray father we love you We thank you once again for this opportunity that you have given us to come here for the sole purpose of looking at your life so that we might love you more and grow closer to you and then become more like you and i pray that we would this week that lord we would let our light so shine before others that they might see you in us and that they might be drawn to you that your holy spirit would do the drawing work through our lives our testimonies our witness and i pray lord that as you did with um with the woman at the well that you would give us those divine appointments where we might have opportunities this week to speak to others about the living water that only Jesus Christ can provide. And Father, we thank you for these... uh these testimonies that we've seen this morning through the woman at the well and the woman who just lavished all her love upon you. And I pray, Lord, that we would be like that, that we wouldn't worry about what others think, that we would just totally focus on living for you and surrendering our all for you. And Father, we'll be mindful to give you all the glory. And we do pray that should someone here not know you yet, that today... They would accept that invitation to come unto you and to take your yoke upon them and to to just realize, Lord, that your burden is light, that your way is easy and that it's the only way, the straight gate is the only way that leads to life eternal. And, Lord, if they want to do that, I pray they would either come to me or to their discussion group leader and that we might show them through the Word of God how they might truly be born again and enter that straight gate. We love you, Lord. Now we pray that you would bless us through Mary, for we pray in your name. Amen.